Welcome to Intelligent Edge Yoga, yoga conversations for smart, compassionate practice with Catherine Ann Flynn. I'm Catherine. Hi, yogis. Before we get started with this week's wonderful guest, I wanted to let you know that I have a new training posted for four days in November entitled Understanding Moving Bodies and Efficient Accessible Yoga Sequencing. It's the course that many of you have been waiting for me to put up. We're going to look at the physiology of movement. How is it we move? How do we gain and lose range of movement? our gifts and what I call our gets. So why some of us are bendy and or strong and what's happened to us through lifestyle and what we can do about it. We're going to take that information to form the foundation of exploring teaching with less fear and so many tools and tricks to put together mini sequences and then whole sequences so that you can teach classes that get a lot done all without feeling cluttered. We also have a special guest, Jeff Outerbridge, who is the clinical director of World Spine Care and a BSc in human kinetics and an MSc in neuroscience. What a loser. Anyway, he's going to join us uh, for an afternoon and chat with us about a few things very relevant to what it is we'll be looking at. So you can find that on the website at www.intelligentedge.yoga, where you can find all the things I get up to as well as every episode's show notes. This week, I'm joined by Bree Johnson, currently from Edmonton, Alberta, though about to take off on a European tour. Bree has been a yoga teacher and movement educator for over 16 years. With an insatiable love for learning and studying the human body, she continues her ongoing education in yoga, anatomy, and biomechanics. A teacher, mentor, and community builder with a focus on functional and sustainable approaches to yoga, Brie teaches workshops, teacher trainings, and retreats around the world. She is known for her warm and engaging teaching style, providing a safe foundation of healthy movement while remaining focused in the heart of the yogic teachings. You will enjoy our conversation. We touch on things that move far, far beyond anatomy and mobility and integrating those into our teaching. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Brie Johnson. Hello. Hi, Brie. <laughs> How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. What have you been up to today? Uh, everything. <laughs> Trying to get my life in order for work and everything like that. So, yeah. How about you? Same. Today is today we are recording on a Thursday and Thursday is my big teaching day. And I know this is going to sound like quite a spacious schedule to some people, but I teach three classes on Thursdays. That's that's, a lot. It's so much. It is. No, it really is. (laughs) When I was 25, three back-to-back classes weren't a thing. No, I got I... more jazz as the classes went on. <laughs> and now I teach two classes in a row and I'm like, oh, oh. <laughs> I need to lie mm-hmm. down. Mm-hmm. Because it's, a, it's so much like I know I remember back in when I first started teaching, uh, this was 2003. So there wasn't, you know, you really I really had the pick of classes and I literally started teaching within a week from my teacher training, t- 20 classes a week. You know, and I look back at those days, I was 23. I was just like, this, like, it's just, I could, I don't even know how I did that. It was youthful enthusiasm, I guess. And like, so that would have required, I think, three to four classes a day. Unbelievable. Ugh. Even just saying that out loud, it's like, the I'm nodding along. And I'm also <laughs> wondering if we're, are we the old boys club of modern ah, yoga? Ah, I and like I that. say this because I, put out a little Instagram story recently that asked, did you feel like you knew what to do next after your teacher training? Hmm. Because it's something I've been thinking about and I'm considering a couple of podcast topics and, and that's one of them is what to do after teacher training. And of course, a number of pieces of feedback that I got was 
around not having enough help getting teaching jobs, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, that's as facilitators, I think both of us probably have a lot to say about, is that our role and how do you respond mm-hmm. to that, uh, mm-hmm. et cetera, and how much is enough. Mm-hmm. But same, I, I think I had 11 classes handed to me. Yeah. With the exactly. day I graduated <laughs> at, at the, at the studio at the time in the city. And I don't think that happens anymore. I don't think so either. And it's, you know, and I often get people who are like, Oh, I want to quit my corporate job and start teaching yoga. And I just, I don't want to be the party pooper, but don't quit the corp. Like don't quit that. It's so hard because I actually have a total philosophy of, of do follow your heart, quit the things that are bringing you down, but do it with awareness. And <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think those days are gone. And I think in a way, yeah, we are in those you know, in old boys club. I actually think of it more like we got into the housing market in a sense, you know, early on, it's like, mm, that's a better I live analogy. In, yeah. That's, that's where I feel. Cause I'm definitely in that world, not in a, in any place where I've like, I'm not in early on in the, in the literal housing market, but yeah, jumped in. And so I have that sort of privilege to be able to say, yeah, go teach, do whatever you want. But it's easy for me to say that because it's, I'm already established in that sense. And yeah, that those new teachers really have to be a little bit more bold and creative to be able to make their mark, which is actually something I also love talking about. Cause for me, it's a lot about getting, helping people get clear on their niche as to like who and why they teach, you know? And so the more niche that they can be right off the bat, I think that gives them a little bit more of a heads up because really those studio classes, I don't know how much people are getting paid anymore, but you have to teach a lot of them to actually make a living. You so, do. You oh, know. a tremendous amount. Yeah. To actually make a go of it and, and to be able to save anything. I don't, Yeah. I don't even know if that's possible. Yeah. Really. And what many people don't realize is there's, there's a spaciousness to the yoga calendar. You know, mm-hmm. I can go do my groceries. I can go to Ikea at 2 PM on a Wednesday, mm-hmm. but frequently people are teaching when other people have time to practice, they have yes. time to play. And that's at 6 AM, some people at nine 30, that's when all the, uh, that's when all, all the realtors come nine thirty yeah. is like the realtor time, <laughs> you know, noon after work, late and evenings weekends. and weekends. Yeah. And what ends up happening is you have these weird little patches of time that really aren't that useful except for answering a couple of emails mm-hmm. and you feel like you're working all the time. Mm-hmm. I know it's very interesting. And it's, I remember when I had, so I used to own a yoga studio a number of years ago, uh, over 10 years ago now, but anyways, it, it was right downtown in the city. And I remember, and I used to live just outside of downtown and I would walk to the studio every day. And most of the classes, of course, I'm teaching those evening classes. So I'd have had my maybe daytime classes that I taught, got home for that window in the afternoon and then walking into downtown as everybody's leaving downtown. And it always felt so interesting to be on that full opposite. Like I'm about to start my work day or I'm about to go back to work while everybody's leaving their, their work day. So it was, it was funny. And it was even funny too, because I've never actually had an office job ever. I've really, no, I've, I've, I've been again being, the, the old boys club, I guess that I am, you know, like I was able to start te- So I started teaching when I was 23 and got right into it and have literally been doing it full time ever since. So yeah, it's kind of other than when I had my son and went and took a break for doing that. But yeah, so I would, I would walk by these people having, you could kind of see in the windows on the main floor, sometimes people having meetings and I just, it always seems so fascinating. <laughs> like, what do they do in meetings? <laughs> oh, oh, a whole lot of not much. Yeah. There's actually a meeting epidemic. I saw an article about it recently about have we hit peak meeting. <laughs> anyway, that's another podcast. Yes, 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 yes. You mentioned you owned a studio. Were you mm-hmm. any good at it? 
Ah, that's a good question. Yeah, you know what? I actually, I've, I'm, I've, I really have the heart of an entrepreneur. It's something that I feel very comfortable doing. I don't have any business education, and actually, the studio dropped into my lap. Again, that those early Wild West days of yoga where you could walk away and teach 20 classes. And I actually had known somebody. So I was 24 when I got the opportunity. I'd only been teaching for a year. And a friend of mine, he had just bought this building downtown. And he phoned me up and he was like, hey, I just bought this building and there's a space in it that would make an amazing yoga studio. Have you ever thought of opening up a studio? <laughs> and I laughed and I was like, well, no. Or yeah, maybe when I'm in about 20 or 30 years of, of teaching experience under my belt, then sure. And he's like, just come down and check it out. Just see. I was like, okay, fine. And I showed up and it was this beautiful space and he offered me an incredible deal and sharing costs on the leasehold improvements. And so he's like, okay, take a, take a weekend to think about it. And I just listened to my heart and I was like, okay, let's do this. And it was great because it was also early days in the city. There weren't that many other studios at the time. So I was really able to cultivate what I wanted and cultivate my vision. I'm very comfortable in the business role. I actually quite love business and I love marketing and I love also what I call a conscious business, because I think there's a little, and I've had to work through that myself over the years where, you know, yogis aren't business people, <laughs> you know, or that's a bad thing to have a success because yoga should be something that's offered freely because that's, oops, sorry, I just pulled out my microphone. Yoga should be offered freely because that's how it used to be. And, you know, and I think a lot of the fun is, you know, reframing it and going, well, okay, I, I have this studio and I have this, which is also in the big picture, an opportunity for people to, for us to build community, to learn about ourselves. So it's having that perspective in the business that I was really, I enjoyed and was actually quite the natural at. That being said, I was also young and it was, and not having been trained, I definitely got hugely burnt out after running it for about four years and ended up being able to sell it. And by the time I sold the business, it was, I think I was pretty close to adrenal fatigue. It was pretty intense because there was a lot of, I didn't know how to ask for help. I didn't, you know, I had this part of my personality is definitely, I can do it all and, ah, and realizing, no, I can't and nor should I. So from there, selling the studio and then taking some time to, we moved out of the city, ended up moving to Nelson, BC and took some, and then I ended up get, getting pregnant. So that was this time of what I called my semi-yoga retirement, where I was almost done with yoga and I was done with anything like that. And then slowly yoga couldn't, I just couldn't quit yoga. She kept connecting with me and calling me in. And yeah, and so now to this day, I'm still an entrepreneur at heart and fully embrace and actually quite love just as much as I love yoga. I love building a business. I love being my own boss. I love seeing an idea come just, you know, pop into my head with this work and then doing the work to, to make it happen and see it come to fruition. And so it's quite, for me, it makes a lot of sense and it's very natural for others. They may not be as business minded and not to say there's still to this day, a whole bunch of learning curves and I'm really learning as I go, but at the heart of it, I'm quite comfortable in that entrepreneurial role and quite comfortable in taking risks and quite comfortable putting stuff out there and seeing how to go, how it goes and iterating as possible as needed. So yeah, I guess that's kind of a long winded answer to, yeah, it, I, I, I was good at it, but it was challenging. You know, it wasn't always easy. And that was in Edmonton. Yeah. And did you go end up going back to Edmonton from Nelson or are you still in Nelson? No, we ended up, so we had our son, uh, he's now eight years old. And so when we had him, we wanted to stay in Nelson because it's such a dreamy, magical little bubble. But once we had our son, we realized, okay, you know, we love our family and we're really far away from them. All of our families in Edmonton and Calgary and Banff. And so we were, we thought to ourselves, okay, let's have, we still want to be in a small mountain town, but let's be closer to the family. So we ended up moving to Canmore for a number of years for about four years. And then my husband got a job offer back in Edmonton and 
I was like, I don't know how many times I've actually said this in my life where it's like, I'll never move there again. And then we did. And in the end, it was actually one of the best things that we could have done. Although now we are in the process of moving away from it. We kind of have a four, three to four year staying habit. Where are you headed now? Well, we're actually uh, into the world. We're, we're, my husband quit his job. We're, I've got a whole bunch of teaching workshops and retreats happening in the UK and Europe in the fall. And so we're just extending it into a big family trip. So that's where, again, I'm all about those leaps of faith. And I'm all about taking these big risks because I really want to live the life a really magical life and a life and offering opportunities for my son and, and for the business, of course, being able to go into the world. And that's also why I've been putting a lot of my work into the online space because it's, there's an audience for what I'm doing around the world. And so it makes sense to go online and being online also makes my goal, my biggest goal for a lot of years was to be location independent. So now as long as I've got wireless or internet, then we can be pretty much anywhere. So yeah, so we're just doing a big family trip and not sure where we're, where we will land after that. You can't move back to the suburbs of Alberta because your son's going to be like, I lived in Croatia. <laughs> totally. Now, Edmonton. I've been to 12 countries. What do you mean? This is, this is, Alberta. yeah. And, and for me too, I, I really don't make me spend another winter here. You know, my, I, this usually this time of year, the beginning of summer, I'm, I'm so dramatic in my head where I'm like, I'm like, well, summer's over winter's already here. And it's really honest to goodness, a struggle that I I'm, I'm surprised hasn't gotten better. I feel like it go, gets worse for me every year. So yeah, so I, you know, we'll probably end up on the coast or somewhere with just a little bit better. Uh, to, or, and who knows, we're also very open to continuing to travel. Like we're just, we're right at the precipice of this adventure. So we don't, it's hard to make these big decisions without knowing what we're going to be afterwards and what we'll like, what travel will do for us all. We might end up being like, Nope, we're done. Or we just might want to continue. Who knows? But it's pretty exciting. Before I ask you another question, I just want to share what I like to think of because Ottawa is freezing. It's Mm -hmm. the coldest capital on earth. And I'm no, it got that got, it is, it's colder than Russia. Really? Uh, yeah, that gets trotted out every winter because Canadians <laughs> have this perpetual need that if we get paid any attention to at all by particularly America, then we cling to it. And so this particular story gets circulated whenever Ottawa gets really cold and American people <laughs> pay attention to us. But a positive spin is in cold climates, there are next to no scary bugs. We have a this low a bug point. population because of it. So <laughs> think of that I, every winter. You're thinking, <laughs> I, but yeah, you're true. <laughs> so true. your work has moved online ish mm-hmm. and so many directions to go with this conversation, but, but what have you, so you've mentioned already a couple of the things that you've gained, you've gained a broader audience you're connecting with people who would not have been possible to connect with in, in previous uh, eras of yoga. What have you lost from going more online? Ooh, that's a good question. I don't, nothing is popping out off the top of my head because, and, and maybe I'll have a different answer once we're done this trip because I still have maintained, it's been really nice to pair back. So, you know, back from the beginning of that yoga world where my yoga career, where I was teaching upwards of 20 to 25 classes a week. And then over the last 16 years, definitely pairing back that schedule for sure. Now I'm at a place where in the last year, even I've pared down to just one pre-registered class a week, public class a week, and then had spent a lot of my weekends doing workshops in person. So I feel like having that public class that I teach with, you know, I've got some people in that class who have literally been with me since in those six for 16 years, you know, I've definitely come and gone from Edmonton a number of years, but you know, there's a really beautiful, playful community in that class. And I actually, when I'm teaching live, I'm such an intuitive teacher that 
I'm, you know, I see what's happening in the class. I throw in something slightly different, which then builds on a new, like, oh, I like what they, oh, look at how this is responding in everybody's body. And then it gives me this other idea on top of that. So it's actually a really creative experience being teaching in person in the, in the style that I teach suits that. So that actually feeds a lot of what I then put into the online studio and put into whatever social media posts that I do. So I think I'll, I'll, that's not, so that's not happening yet, right? I'm not done that class. So once I'm done and away from that, I'll probably loot. That's something I'll miss is that an organic, a just community in that class in particular <laughs> is almost the most unprofessional class I teach because the whole group, everybody's silly and we laugh, have a lot of laughter in that class. So there's a really beautiful community that I know I'm going to miss. And yeah, I suppose those going into the world and teaching, I'm still going to be teaching workshops. So there's still that interaction, but, and workshops are where my heart is workshops and trainings, but there is something about that nice about that weekly class and that, you know, I don't have to dive deeper into all the different elements like I would in a training or workshop. So it's a different type of connection with people that, yeah, I think I'll miss, but other than that, there's nothing else that off the top yet. Uh, really focusing my work online has really been more in the last year or two. So give me a couple more years and I'll probably have a better answer for that. The class you're talking about sounds very special. And what you're saying about the organic nature of the teaching, feeding the inquiry, mm -hmm. I relate to so much. But when you and I had our little introductory chat just to establish uh, a rapport, something you said was that you are a very intuitive teacher. And so you were trying to give yourself more structure to some of the offerings that you had because you, you felt a pull to evolve that aspect of your teaching. And I would imagine that if you're doing things online, people are probably looking for that. Mm -hmm. Like you need to go, do you, do you go in with a plan? Do you go in with a structure? For my online classes mm -hmm. and, and yeah. courses. I'm thinking classes and courses. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I've been over the years. So when I teach a workshop in a course, definitely there's a lot more of a clear structure because you just have to have that, you know, and I've, and I've, but within that, I, I know myself enough and I've been teaching long enough that I, I have that ability to, okay, here's my outline. I know my goal that ideally I want to walk away with people understanding about, let's say it's a shoulder workshop. So, you know, my goal is, okay, hopefully people can walk away with a better understanding of how their shoulder works and have a handful of new movements that are going to help support their, the health of their shoulder. So then that's, if that's my destination or if that's my goal, I work backwards from there. So that creates a little bit of a framework for me. And then for what suits my personality, there's my loose framework and there's enough years of experience behind me that I can still pull what I need to pull without having to plan out every step of the way. And I know for some personalities, they need they, they, they need that safety net of the sheet of the plan, and that's fine. I honestly don't think there's a right or wrong way. It's what suits us as individuals. So for me, I, I feel having that loose plan it allows me to navigate the people in the class. So if somebody asks a really great question that might actually be slightly off topic, but yet relevant and helpful for the group, I'm fully okay with going there. So there's that deviation off the plan, but I know it's still going to enhance my ultimate goal, which may be, again, having people understand about their shoulder or whatever that particular workshop or training is. But it's a little bit different and but that's because you also have the bio, like the feedback of the group, right? And so when now I'm teaching to a camera, it's a little, and, and I'm, as a teacher on a regular basis, I don't often do the class with the class, right? I might demo, demo a pose. I might do a couple classes or a couple poses while I do it. But for the most part, I'm walking around and I'm teaching. And so <laughs> when I'm teaching to a camera, I'm also doing the class as I'm teaching it. So for me, it's helpful to have a little bit more of a plan and idea. So if, if there's anything that's more structured that I teach would be my online stuff, just because of the nature of, of the work. Although it's funny, I actually taught, I've been t filming so many online classes that this was the first time the other week I was teaching my class. And normally I'm teaching with a wireless mic that's tucked into my pants behind me. And I went to go I'd like tuck my, like, cause it kind of falls out a little bit every time I do a movement. So I just instinctively went to tuck in the mic that wasn't there. And that's when I realized, Ooh, okay. I've been doing too many solo 
on videos now. So it was a nice reminder, like go write humanity people. <laughs> I find whenever I demonstrate, which is incredibly infrequent, I'm often thinking, this is hard. (laughs) (laughs) And one of the things that I really think about are teaching methods that are certainly content based. You know, what activity are you going to do uh, to produce XYZ effect immediately and long term? But also how is how I facilitate creating the class experience for everyone? And one of the things that it's subtle and it matters is if you're demonstrating, depending on the difficulty of your class, your energy levels, your fitness levels, if you're doing the thing, that effort shows up in your voice. (laughs) I don't ever want to teach a class where people are listening to me like, like, like there's that quality behind what I'm doing. Particularly because I teach a lot of classes that are not complex and not tricky, but certainly Mm -hmm. challenging. Mm -hmm. And so my feeling is that if my voice is calm and steady and supportive, somewhat buoyant, then they can do the difficult things without having the sensations of difficulty heightened by strain in my voice. Mm hmm. That's a really interesting point. And I think it's helpful to talk about that. I, I love the the thought of, you know, like the pedagogy, really, of just like the teaching about teaching, like, how are we teaching our teaching? <laughs> and I think you raise a good point. Where's that fine line between ease and not ease? And, and I think, again, it comes back to understanding who we are as individuals and translating that to who then who we are as teachers. For me, the way I navigate that, and especially because I've had people in the online studio ask for classes that were a little bit more challenging, and I'm happy to do that. And challenging can be really defined in so many different ways for different people. But I'm <laughs> so when I've added some of these challenging po- like classes, I'm teaching along with it, and there are absolutely moments where <laughs> it is not like I'm like, "Whoo, okay, that was." And so for me, I'm clear and okay with. Because I'm like at the heart of it too, I'm also quite a playful teacher. So one of my main MOs about teaching is giving people the freedom and permission to be themselves, to, to not be good at something, to have challenge and not make it a big deal if they can't do it well, you know, because it's all about exploration and playfulness. So even in the online studio where I don't have that actual feedback of somebody in the class, I'll still be okay with show, like my voice may not be as easeful and I might even get a little bit out of breath, but I, I feel okay with that because that's also gives other people permission to, to not do it well. Though I totally hear what you're saying about like how it can really, you know, we're looking at it from two sides of the same coin in a way that's where, okay, if you, if they see that the teacher's having a challenge, then it, then they're going to maybe perceive that this is challenging. Right. Oh, I'm, I have no problem with them knowing I'm human with limitations, <laughs> with very clear limitations. It's, it, it's more to do with the quality of voice. Mm. And, and I say frequently, this is, this is hard. This is difficult. How can we do difficult things with more calm? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's a great great teaching tool is just to show that and see it. And I think, you know, and I think at the same time, teaching voice, we just do the best we can. And if we get a, if you're demoing and going, whew, because I think that's for me how I, I end up sharing it. It's just like, I will make a joke about it. It's like, holy, you know, I'm getting tired. So how about you? You know, because it's also for me as a teacher, I don't want to ever be that teacher who's at the front of the room being perfect or, and I, and I'm going to assume you're very much the same way too. Right. So, you know, or where we're, we're just because you're a yoga teacher doesn't mean that you have to be able to do everything, you know? So again, it's that sense of offering that, that sense of humanity. Although there's a big debate about whether you should teach what you, what you can do. Or maybe used to do, depending on your age. Mm. So if, like, say, so clarify that more. So if you if you do not practice headstand and cannot do a headstand, headstand should not be 
an offering within your classes? Mm, interesting. I, yeah, I think, and I think that's a, a worthwhile debate and I can see both sides of it. And I guess it would also depend on the movement. You know, are you able to, because I would even like headstand aside, should we even be teaching headstand alone, whether we can do it or not, right? Which is a whole other conversation. So let's just say something like the splits. I don't know. Granted, I don't even remember the last time I've ever taught that. But, you know, let's say that's one of the requirements. You're at a studio and let's say you have to teach splits in a class, but you can't actually do them. I think the answer to that debate is if we understand the foundational building blocks of movements, if we're able as teachers to be able to deconstruct some like a, a, a pose, then we then we create layers or what I sometimes call in my playful approach to teaching is like choose your own adventure. Because I say that too. Do oh, you? I so... am not surprised. Oh, <laughs> cool. It is a choose your own adventure approach. It, right. Because it's, you know, and I love saying that because then it's rather than saying, well, if you're more flexible, do this. If you're, because especially in the past when I used to teach that way, of course, even though I would say something like, if you have the flexibility, do this option guaranteed half the people who don't have that flexibility are doing it anyways, mm -hmm. because it's the more, it's the perception of the more advanced option. So teaching about teaching then that going, okay, well, I understand that that's something about human nature, that there's going to be people that are going to push it. So when we change our, our language to less level based options and more like choose your adventure adventure one and we just do it in building blocks so let's say my peak pose quote quote would be the splits whether or not anybody even does the splits we are doing all these we're, we're, we're it's actually kind of goes back to what i was saying with the uh, with a workshop what's your objective and then working backwards from there and i think that's where teachers to be successful and skillful teachers to be, uh, be able to understand those movement building blocks so that you are able to confidently deconstruct a pose and make it accessible to everyone, whether or not anybody does the full quote, quote pose. Absolutely. I, my podcast listeners will bear with me the same way my in-person students bear with me. I'm repetitive. I feel it is the gift and privilege of the teacher is to return to, to stories and anecdotes that work well. But mm -hmm. I've said multiple times in classes that strength and flexibility are not necessarily the hallmarks of an advanced practice. If they were, every 12-year-old gymnast would be a guru <laughs> because they are stronger and way more flexible than I am. Mm -hmm. And for someone like that, if they come to yoga, splints ain't no thing. They can do it on day one. So is that an advanced posture? Bingo. Bingo. No. And that's, and that's, and again, the, the role of being a, a conscious, mindful teacher is recognizing all these layers. And so I often talk about this where I call it like the, the questions under the questions. So we recognize that there's these, maybe these habits that a lot of the people into the class are going to come in or these preconceived notions. And one is, I think that's an old paradigm where, oh, flexible equals advanced. And I really feel maybe I'm in a bubble, but I really feel that that conversations changing and people are starting to realize that that's not the case. But I also feel it's our role as teachers to not perpetuate that even unconsciously as best we can. So exactly repeating yourself as many times as you need to, to help reframe and redefine what advanced is. And in fact, you know, since I started incorporating more movement education into my classes and, and really pairing back the movements and focusing on these building blocks and focusing. And by doing so, you get into these different parts of your body, your hips, your shoulders that you don't actually often access when we're going for the big grand poses. And, you know, and the, to me, that's the advancement when we can pair it back and do some small little movement where you're just like, Oh my God, this is so hard. Like I sometimes joke that my subtitle for my classes should be, you know, come to, you know, yoga class, Tuesday night yoga, where uh, it's a whole bunch of little things that are actually ridiculously hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In a good way. <laughs> yeah. I wrote an article for the yoga conference a couple of years ago entitled, I teach less yoga so I can teach more yoga. Ooh, that's good. And Very good. 
The idea being that asana posture practice is not particularly efficient, especially if you're teaching to the general population. And so there's this movement movement, I imagine we're going to talk about, which for me, when it started to crop up in my digital world, I just, I was like, yeah, (laughs) because if you're teaching in, if you're teaching in small towns or if you're teaching to the general population, I realized a long time ago that I couldn't teach what I practice. There are certainly elements of my practice, but transitions in particular were too tricky and dangerous or demoralizing for lots of people that I was seeing on a weekly basis. And so what I ended up doing was subtracting the transitions and then heightening the repetition and working with uh, engagement and contraction education. So here's here's how we're going to work this foundation. And, and that's where the work is going to be. And so when everything started to uh, burst onto the digital scene of, of uh, the limitations of asana, I was, I was thrilled that I all of a sudden started to have some language and some community around stuff that I had figured out on the mat already. Bingo, yeah. Yeah, and very exactly, and very similar story to, with myself as well, where I, I've often referred to it as my yoga existential crisis. You know, where this was this was where I was at, but you didn't see it reflected around you very often. You know, and I felt like I was the only teacher teaching this way, or at that time teaching at a studio that used to be quite Ashtanga based, and then new ownership kind of got rid of that really hardcore Ashtanga uh, practice but left a lot of the people who were used to that intensity and then going to, let's say my classes and it would be a flow class. <laughs> and even though it wasn't, it was still a hard challenging class, but I was not offering a vinyasa every other pose, if at all. And yeah, it was interesting to feel like, you know, how do I navigate that place of knowing what I know it through my own practice and education and yet offering people what they think they want And so there was this long period of time where I felt really alone in that because, you know, it seemed like, well, the students want to do something different. The social media world of yoga was showing different things. And then I agree, the minute it started to shift a little bit in the digital space, yeah, that was pretty exciting. And, you know, and, and that's where I think I got bold enough to start to put my stuff out online more because then I was just like f it <laughs> you know I, I if i'm feeling alone with this then i know there's other people who are feeling the same thing and i'm just going to put my take out out there and if people like it yay and if people don't yay <laughs> and, and here we are today <laughs> i don't i i admit to being confused by people who are who are not uh rejecting rejecting uh, not choosing to incorporate the movement and mobility movement into their teaching. I think it's totally okay for them to say, you know what? I have an asana based practice and teaching practice. I have a thriving community. They are well served. That is not my pro- I think that's totally legitimate. Mm-hmm. But the anger sometimes around, you know, by feeling like other teachers are doing something else, ergo, it's a criticism of what they're doing. I don't really understand because asana has really the shortest and murkiest history of the whole yoga system. And no one's really suggesting that we go reorganize Patanjali's sutras. (laughs) You know, that there's a certain... People aren't trying to uh, totally upend the system. They're just trying to evolve the technology. That's a beautifully succinct, that last sentence is exactly it. Hey, like evolving the technology. And, but I think the D, so again, for me, I'm like, my brain always likes to try to get to the heart of things as best as I can perceive. And for, I hear, I, you know, I think that part of the conversation comes from, we have to zoom out a little bit. And I think, there's this underlying prevalent story and perception about yoga that truly I think in a lot of ways is inaccurate of, of that, 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 
yoga has been unchanged. Yoga asana has always been there since, you know, thousands of years. And what is asana is not like, you know, these are like, these are methods to enlightenment or whatever the story is. And I think it's a really compelling story that we've all, you know, I'm here, I'll just speak for everybody, but <laughs> I was going to say we've, we've all bought into in some different ways and in, in some different moments. And it's, it's hard to pull out of that because like I said, it's very compelling. It's very seductive. We're, we, and we got to reflect that back to the culture that in the West here that we're in, where we are in a, in a cultural deficit where, you know, like, Oh God, they're like, how many hours do we have right now to actually, you know, unpack all of this and deconstruct this. So no wonder we go to something like, like yoga is so magical. <laughs> yoga has been, has been in our, in our cultural mind as this way to, to transcend our world and ourselves and learn about ourselves. And I, and I, well, I think that's absolutely true. We have gotten confused that yoga asana is right in there. Right. And it's, and, and as you said, yeah, it's one of the earliest or most recent additions to the entire practice. So I think there's, and this is where what I talk a lot about recently, really defining for myself as somebody who teaches other teachers, changing even the conversation in this new space that I really feel like the yoga world is in, where we're, we're in this really interesting time of old paradigms, new paradigms. There's this tension between both. And a lot of people are trying to figure out how to go forward and don't know how to do it. And I, and, and so the way I've been trying to create a language around this for myself and then for others is looking at it more like yoga leadership, where the leadership side of things goes, we recognize this tension. We recognize that there is an ancient tradition that we don't want to throw the yoga baby out with in that bathwater thing. But yet we recognize that there have been injuries and there's things that not just physically, but, you know, the way teachings have been transmitted from that patriarchal guru hierarchical relationship, you know, like none of that's working anymore. And so we're in this space in between those two worlds. And as teachers, hopefully, and, and those who are willing to, to be uncomfortable with both sides of those and move forward and create a path that's really authentic to them and authentic to the people that they're working with, that takes leadership. And to me, I define leadership as boldness as being okay with walking on a path that hasn't been well trod and being okay to stumble on that path even, you know, because we are co-creating this. And just like yoga has always been co-created, it really, and that's the disservice. And that's where I feel like that, again, that cultural image of yoga is this really untouched lineage that's never been changed, which is completely untrue, you know? So yeah, it's a lot. Do you think we're in a post-guru era? Heck yeah. <laughs> I, I Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, and I sometimes joke, actually, sometimes if people ask me what kind of yoga I teach, my little tongue-in-cheek joke is, actually, I teach post-yoga. Post-yoga. <laughs> so uh, how about a post-teacher era? Ooh. Well, okay, let's do it. But I think there we need to define the language a little, a little bit, which is this is why I think podcasts and interviews and conversations like this are what is so exciting and so needed. And I think it's something you touched on earlier of we're all trying to create a language and there isn't a new language for what's happening. And so this languaging and these conversations are what helps clarify. So I hope that everybody's listening, that this is also what I call open source yoga. So you hear what we're talking about, and then you're able to have more of a language to define what's in your heart and intuition. And so no, I would I would go back to saying maybe not post teacher, because we all need teachers in our lives. It's maybe how we define teachers. I think you nailed it with post guru, because there's a big difference between guru and teacher. And to me, teacher interlaced with leader a good, healthy leader in any capacity, whether that's at the office and a corporation, whether that's in, um, you know, anything else, a leader is somebody who recognizes their own strengths, who's willing to walk boldly, but also recognizes that they can't do it alone, mm -hmm. that the community and the team is stronger when we, when we are all given the opportunity to be who we are and given the opportunity to offer our insights. And so 
I don't want to lose that. And in fact, I think moving forward here, we all need to be bold enough to take on that. If should you choose to put on, take on that responsibility to be that leader and recognize that this is collective, that we all have a role to play. But where the guru side of this comes in, like I said, that it's, it's hierarchical. It's, it's patriarchal. It's absolutely male based. And I've kind of loved, and I remember I wrote one of my first blog posts I ever wrote back when I had a, I still have a blog, but not, you know, this was around 2012 when blogs were still really a thing. And I wrote, cause it was the year 2012 and I wrote, I called it the, this post called the year of the guru because that year was the year John friend and the Anusara mm. lineage kind of fell from the pedestal Kaustub Desikachar, who I personally had had, um, uh, uh, in, like, like that I was involved in, in that world for a little bit. So I, so I believe me, that's a whole nother conversation talking about the guru and teacher and power struggle that I find super fascinating and interesting, but we'll pause on that for a moment. But there's all these teachers, male based teachers that fell that year. And since then, I think it continues to because I think people are starting, I hope, you know, I'm such an optimist. I hope that people continue to wake up and recognize that those teachers who are gurus and present themselves as gurus are just as human as all of us. And in fact, here's a little side note is, do you know the movie Kumari? Did you ever watch that or hear of it? I have heard of it. I haven't watched it. Okay. So this is required. If anybody, it used to be on Netflix. I don't know if it is anymore. Everybody listening, this is your homework. You have to go watch it because I think if you're interested in this like post guru conversation, so the real short side of this is that he, there's just a guy, an, an American, but man from within Indian lineage. And he decided to do an experiment and become Kumari and see if he could create a following because of he was aware of this. And then it was just the whole documentary goes through him kind of tongue in cheek being like, I am Kumari. And he got, he got all these followers, but then there actually ended up being some really big transformative moments with the people and him. And then he ended up eventually coming out to them and saying, I'm just a guy. I'm, and, and some people didn't care. Other people were just like, so it was just, it just shows holds up that mirror to our guru culture and our human nature that we want to revere other people as if they have all the answers. That highlights the the fallout from the fallout of the gurus is, is after all of that, can you separate the product from the person? Yeah. The practice yeah. from the person in this instance. Yeah. Or what's, or what's sticky about this, because again, so to, back to me, the way I see it, again, those questions under the questions, it's not as simple as, oh, we just gave our power away. And why did we think that somebody else is better and has all the answers? That's actually the way I see it is that because we're social creatures, we're hardwired to learn from each other. So that conversation around guru and teacher and leader is a good teacher, in my opinion, is somebody who recognizes that I have something to share with you, but also recognizes you have something to share with me. Everybody in this class, let's say, has something to offer and share. So we're all here to learn from each other because that's the way we're wired. Our brains are just straight up wired that way. But then those wires get crossed in the culture and not just in yoga, but this like we are all in a colonial patriarchal culture that you know, there's an external authority that knows better, whether that's religion, whether that's our, the government, whether that's right, all these things. And so we think yoga is exempt from that, but it's not right. So, oh my goodness, yeah. it's, it's and deep I think territory. People are, people are hungry for connection. They're hungry for community and they're hungry for a system that that helps shape the path of their life. Yes. And that's, I personally think that that is why yoga has arisen in this time and era because, because all we have is the dollar, right? As, mm -hmm. as our culture increasingly grows secular, we need to fill it with something. And I think this also speaks as to why sacred geometry and palisanto and crystals are increasingly popular people are looking for meaning mm -hmm. and the yoga community it's still early days you know if the studios are our initial response to how to do this yoga thing but they're imperfect we all know that 
they're trying and they have uh, some very big limitations on them, like rent <laughs> and mm-hmm. bricks and mortar costs. They're trying, but they have limitations. And so I think lineage ends up giving people this more ephemeral container for their practice that they cling to because it gives them increased certainty and a sense of belonging. Yes. But this is actually, this is the opportunity for the local teacher, right? Elevate your availability, not the quantity in which you teach necessarily, but the opportunities in which you give people to be around and discuss yoga. And they will gravitate more toward that than they will necessarily to, uh, to online classes with famous people, yoga, famous people. That's always a relative term. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I, and I think what you're saying too, there's no, there's nothing wrong with wanting to find meaning. You know, we, we, there's nothing wrong. I think it's perfectly natural and normal that we want to have community, that we want to have meaning. Because again, when we, we cannot separate the culture, this big, you know, Western culture from what's going on in the yoga world, because as I said, there's a real deficit of all of that. And as you said, you know, like in, in, in our regular culture. So of course, exactly we're turning to yoga and other practices like that. And so acknowledging that that's okay and that's normal and, and not, and then it is interesting. It's something that we touched on earlier of then that, and then, and then that sense of being up in arms about, well, is that truly yoga? <laughs> you know, that conversation of like, if we do add in some different movements and well, this isn't yoga. And then, and meanwhile, I think all of this is missing the point that what, what is yoga? Let's distill this, you know, like what's the heart of what we're doing. And, and I often call it just now human being training, you know, mm. like how do we be better human beings? How do we, mindfully consciously move through this world creating community recognizing that there is a deficit reckon like mental illness is rampant you know like there and i think there's this quote and i think it's krishnamurti and i'm going to butcher the quote but it's something about being uh you know it's not a sign of health being oh, like adapted to a sick culture something like that somebody please find me the right one but you know like it's 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 that thing where we're all trying to fit into to a system both in the big picture our our western culture and i think in a lot of ways the yoga world who's mimicking that in in different ways where where everybody's trying to fit into these boxes that aren't good boxes in the first place Hmm. and so i feel incredibly passionate about again so then back to that sense of leadership of those of us who are feeling that friction and feeling like well something needs to change we need to be the ones to step up to to help move that change forward. And, and like I said, these conversations are so important. And I hope they embolden people to ask more questions to, yeah, you know, whether you are that local teacher, and then do something different, pull out if, if you're in a studio situation where it's just not resonating with you anymore, but you're scared to leave it because it's a steady pay or, you know, it's good for raising your profile or whatever it might be. Can you find ways to step out of that perceived safety net? Cause it's when we do that and start to follow our own paths and is when we can really start to, I really feel and have experienced is that that's when we attract our community and that's when we attract our tribe. And then we are all consciously enacting this, new, new essential paradigm. You know, I don't know if it's new, but I think it's a humanity moving forward. Yes. And you do work, you work with yoga teachers, which I think is so necessary because of who, and maybe, maybe you work with a wider diversity of people, but I find most of my trainings are a hefty 90% people who identify as women, but I'm, struggling to participate in some of these conversations around less leadership or not leadership, less, uh, authority, less positions of, of knowing and much more collaborative. And it's, I am absolutely not saying that I don't believe in a collaborative learning space. I do. I think it's incredibly hubristic to think that people coming into your teaching and learning environment do not have their own wisdom and knowing. At the same Mm -hmm. time, the culture that we live in tends to uh, 
encourage women in particular to be more community minded, not stick their head above the crowd, prioritize being nice over assertive. And I think that's difficult in the yoga community when we're, we're also saying that there is a problem with how, uh, you know, authority of knowledge has been enacted so far. Mm-hmm. So I think we need to question the systems, but we also need to empower people to know that if they're working from an ethical place and they're continuing to do their practice and to check in that they absolutely can say, you know what, here's what I know and I'm going to share it. Yeah, it, this is the, yeah, I love that we're teasing this apart because it's none of this is so black and white. Hey, and I think you raise a really good point of, again, the way that women generally have been raised. Yeah. And they're like, cause, cause collaboration, I'm so, like a hundred percent open source yoga. Like, yes. And you raise a beautiful point of how then do we own our own authority? And I think that's what you're questioning. And, and maybe I think is a really good conversation because it is, it's, 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 you know, where I think like when I mentioned about where I'm very comfortable being a business owner and I, there, and there's also a real, even for myself, a reticent reticence to talk about like in social media where I share a lot of my personal life in some ways, you know, like, like part of a large part of my life is building a business and I get so much joy from that. But I don't talk a lot about it a lot because I'm also aware that the world that we live in, I could be perceived as well, then she's not as good of a yoga teacher then, you know, she's also wanting to build a really sustainable, successful business, which why wouldn't I want that? Yes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so like, successful why... at the spiritual practice, I'm going out of business. <laughs> yes. So successful, I can't pay my rent. Oh, and like, and, and, and one of my longest dreams of my life, and, and I, and like, even before I met my partner, we've been together for 16 years is like, I've always wanted to be the sugar mama. On Truth yoga? Oh my goodness. My partner makes that joke all the time. He's like, <laughs> with your big yoga dollars. Yeah. Well, and, and, and you know, and that's tent. another conversation. I think there's a lot of different creative ways to start to bring income in for yoga, but yeah, but that's another, you know, but so for me, but if I said that too often, you know, I feel like I feel like even that that's the first time I've said this perfect uh, publicly, I think, where, you know, that is a, that's one of my goals. And that's one of my and, and I can't do that unless I have a successful business. And why should the why should I be less of a heart based person, yoga teacher, leader, authority, whatever it is? In or, you know, to, to also achieve that as well. You know, I think both can be to get the same and synthesize, but I recognize, and it's still so embedded in myself as a woman to play that down and be like, no, I just teach yoga and oh, I'm just going to get this far. And so I think bringing up that conversation around authority and leadership and stepping into one's power, I think is a really important conversation to have. And I think there's a way to, to not like incorporate both a very solid leadership style where you, because I also think sometimes it's a, prof, a sense of professionalism where when you're, 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 you're owning your power and you're owning who you are and you're being professional in that. Does that, does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And that, I mean, that's, those are the things that we can only say in our trainings, yes. uh, but that, really matter is that professionalism is extremely important because professionalism means consistency and students respond to consistency. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and then think too, you know, as a teacher where if we're being very conscious about the way that we teach, it's holding your own authority. I am going to be a way more effective teacher if I'm being professional and authentic in my knowledge and, and what I know and not being a jerk at the same time. And there's absolutely a way to be that, to be that authority to, to, without being heading into patriarchal, you know, hierarchical, well, I know what's good for you. This is what, you know, this is, let me transmit this knowledge to you. There's this, there's this real interesting, again, back to that sense of tension between, okay, I have something to share and yet I can give you the freedom to explore that within yourself. But I know I'm going to hold up for myself 
because it's going to only help the person and the people that we're working and teaching is to own our own power unapologetically. And that for me has been my work in the last couple of years of not, you know, like I used to just not be as shiny in some cases because I didn't want to make other people feel less, than, you know, and I'm sure as a woman, many people feel that. And so for me, part of that authority as a teacher is going, no, I'm going to be who I am and I'm going to be as bright and shiny as possible. And if somebody doesn't love it, that's fine because that's part of the transmission of, of, of the teaching, right? Is embodying my fullest self so that I can mirror back to somebody else their fullest self. And, and they can pick that up and run with it or that can scare them away. I don't care. But that's part of our, our responsibility as a teacher where there's so many layers to it. So it's not just how we're like the language we're using. It's not just the, the, the poses and the movements and that deconstruction, but it's all of this. And I think that's the strength. And I think that's almost, yeah, the unspoken thing that, that how do you teach that other than just talking about it and inviting people to try it on, you know, Something that you've mentioned a couple of times, and I've, I've heard you say before, the, the questions under the questions. And I think we will always be dissatisfied uh, and disappointed if we're looking back into, into time and yoga culture and yoga history for a purity of origin <laughs> and, a, and a linear path to the present moment in the same way that moving forward, looking to the future, it's not going to be a path forever down the road. We're going to get on one path for a period of time and we're going to explore it and we'll take what, what serves us and serves our community from that before we, you know, maybe just change direction a little bit. Yeah. And that's the living tradition, <laughs> you know, like that keeps the through line is the path, but how we walk on it or where that path goes, that's what keeps it living and relevant from like, you know, into the future and onwards. So, and being in it, and I really truly feel being bold enough to walk forward on that path in the way that we want to and make some missteps along the way and know that that's okay. And I think you, yeah, I think that's a really important reflection is recognizing it's never been truly linear and it's a disservice when we get stuck on that we're chatting in june of 2018 just to situate this for people who end up listening in the future where can people find you upcoming Okay. Well, there's, of course, as we've talked about the online space. So I have a membership, uh, what I call my yoga online studio, where you can do a monthly or yearly membership and just take these fun, playful classes that really focus on integrating the movement research into yoga. So it's really about that good mobility, good functional movement. It's that deconstructed sort of approach. So you can do that. Check that out. Absolutely. And then, yeah, if you're listening anytime around from now on onwards, then the fall of 2018, I'm going to be doing a, a big teaching trip where I'm teaching some workshops uh, in the UK and Europe. So you can find both of those, that information on heartandbonesyoga.com. And I also have a couple of retreats. I've got a retreat coming up in September in Iceland. There's still spots for that. And then we've got a Costa Rica retreat in March and then a Croatia retreat in April. Um, yeah, so I think those are kind of the main places. And then, of course, if you're on social media, Heart and Bones Yoga on Facebook and Instagram and all those other fun social channels. All the places people can connect with you. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for your time today. Mm, thank you. This was delightful. I always think that I have more time than we actually do. I, I would love to have you back and to talk, you know, about, about the thing that you can do with people's shoulders. That's, that's, yeah, have you noticed right. that's your reference? You love to talk about like the shoulder thing. It's interesting, Good. but then never actually right. talk about the shoulder thing. You were so a hundred percent. Yeah. And it is the shoulder. I always like not hip. It's like something about this. Yes. I know. And I know. And that's so funny because it's like, again, it's like, to me, that's the gateway. That's the, that's how you get people through the door. It's like body, but the heart of it. And that's where, you know, for me, I think the name heart and bones is so powerful to me. It's because 
that's the bones stuff. That's the education. That's the physical inhabitation of our bodies. But then that's nothing without the heart work. And I'm really way more, I don't want to say way more because I'm just as interested in the movement as I am the heart work. But to me, the heart works, it's, it's where it's at and it makes everything else come alive. And if we're not doing our heart work, then what are we doing? Then we're not doing yoga, in my opinion. Yep. So, yeah, no, I know. And so, and holy, so many threads to that we could unpack in future conversations. So it's beautiful talking with you and your lovely, insightful and articulate way of summing up some of these concepts. It's really nice. It was really good to talk to you too. Have a really good evening. Thank you. Bye for now, Bree. Bye. That's all for this week. If you'd like to find Brie, you can go to the show notes on the website at www.intelligentedge.yoga. And I've linked to all of her upcoming fun events and courses. And just a gentle reminder that if you'd like to do something kind for me, you could head over to iTunes and give us a rating, preferably five stars and a little review. It really does help us climb through the rankings and be found by more people. Either way, namaste for now, yogis.